Our Bible reading today is in Acts chapter 4, and if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's in, um, on page 1695. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, fried, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see that the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, 
Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Well, thank you, Maren, and hello, everyone. I'm Chris here, if you haven't met me before. Good to see you. And we'll be working our way through the book of Acts. Stick up your hand if you need a Bible. It'd be good to have a Bible right in front of you or access to one on a phone. That would be good. Hands up. And we'll be following the uh, leaflet. Now, here is a beautiful statement up on the screen. Okay. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ because his is the name under heaven given to us um, through which we can be saved. What a beautiful statement, right? Uh, it tells us that God, in his mercy and kindness, has sent us a saviour called Jesus. Jesus is able to completely save those who turn towards him. That's wonderful news, isn't it? And that's what Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, isn't it? No, it isn't. If you look carefully, you'll see he said something slightly different. Okay, here's what I just said. Oh, sorry, I, you heard what I just said now. <laughs> sorry, it's very hard to work out what I'm about to do, isn't it? Okay, let's go to Acts 4.12. Okay, here's what Peter says. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. What's the difference? They're both talking about Jesus' name, both statements. Peter is underline, underlining the exclusive role that Jesus has as the only saviour in all the world. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That, in our day and age, is a more difficult statement. Because in a society which says there is no ultimate truth, religion is a matter of personal choice, and it really should be private, and Christians need to shut up, we discover that Jesus Christ is the only saviour for all people who need saving. Now, if, it, if that's true, that means that on the issue of personal salvation, every, every other religion is a false path a dead end, that everyone who's not believing in Jesus Christ is doomed to failure. They're like someone rowing around the ocean trying to find God in a, in a boat full of holes. They're going to sink. Whereas Jesus Christ, is the, he's the only one who can take us to him safe and secure. Now, you may have issues with that stance, which smacks of arrogance, Maybe you don't have issues, maybe that's what you believe, but you work in a workplace or you're in a school or a uni environment where even if you agree, those things, well, they're really not permitted to be thought, let alone spoken about. Well, I want to tell you it's of comfort to know that Peter's statement was just as outlandish in his day as ours. Uh, the first century world had many gods. Everyone in the Roman Empire had to once a year bow down and acknowledge Caesar as Lord. Um, Jews, except the Jews, that would, <laughs> they wouldn't do it. They had an exclusion clause, but everyone else had to do that. And even within Judaism, Peter is saying, 
this to the very council that was responsible for condemning Jesus to death only months beforehand. They were a council that had already displayed their hand as violent in their opposition to Jesus. And yet Peter speaks of Jesus' exclusivity as saviour. It comes out in verse 2. Okay, we remember the context. In chapter 3, Peter and John go to pray. They let him, met a man on the way. He held out his palms. He asked them for arms. This is what Peter did say. Anyway, he heals this man in the name of Jesus. An astonishing miracle because here he is, over 40 years old, standing in the temple in front of everyone, a man who had been lame from birth, completely restored. No one can deny it. And in fact, he's leaping and praising God. Peter then takes that as a cue to preach to the crowds and he tells them, look, it wasn't us who healed this man, it was Jesus, once dead, now alive, who healed the man. And now in chapter 4, verse 2, we're hearing more of Peter's sermon because news is filtered back to the temple authorities that Peter is proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. What does that mean? Not just that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but that in Jesus Christ, others too may also be raised from the dead. Now, that is totally unique. So that had never been said of any other person before. It had never been said of anyone since. And it's unique across religions. A totally unique thing that Peter is saying. Most of us, I'm guessing, would find that very hard to speak of in our work environment or a school environment or at uni. I mean, imagine fronting up tomorrow to whoever you normally spend Monday with, and when the topic turns to you on, the week, on what you did on the weekend, you, can you see yourself saying, well, I was reminded that everyone in the world must turn to Jesus Christ because only in him can someone be raised from the dead. I'm guessing most of us would be freaked out at the thought of saying something like that, uh, so exclusive about Jesus. And yet, in contrast to us, what astonished the temple authority was, was the courage of Peter and John. Here were ordinary, uneducated men. They had no PhD from the University of Jerusalem uh, in world religions or um, matters medical. People like you and me speaking courageously of the uniqueness of Christ as saviour and his absolute relevance for every single person. Peter, when he said this, he didn't say it with an embarrassed sort of mumble. <laughs> I have to say it, but... No, no, no. He didn't think of the message as a uh, sort of a stone that it got caught in his sandal. You know, he couldn't shake hold of. He just had to walk with. It was just painful. No, no, no. Uh, this was the wonderful news. And he spoke with great courage. Um, not because he was naturally courageous. He's the man who had denied Jesus three times, only a few months before. But now he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he speaks as an eyewitness. Now, what relevance does this have for us? We're not eyewitnesses, right? <laughs> uh, anyone here seen the risen Jesus from the dead? No? Okay. Well, Thankfully, Luke records for us this story so that we also would have courage. Now, how do we get courage if we're not eyewitnesses? Because he writes to give us perspective on opposition. Now, I'm assuming that most people here would love to hold our belief in Jesus more deeply and with greater clarity. And even if we're not at the point of believing in Jesus, wouldn't we love to know what God thinks about this rather extreme disciple of Jesus? Well... 
Verses 3 to 22 show us a perspective that Peter has, which gives courage. Verses 23 to 31 outlines Peter's prayer for courage. And then finally, that perspective we can apply to us. But first up, Luke tells us this story to give us a perspective on opposition. It's a perspective that brings courage. It puts opposition in perspective. Now, in verse 3, the arrival of the temple authorities and the temple police when Peter is preaching tells us that there's going to now be a showdown. There's going to be a clash. They would have taken issue with Peter and John on two fronts. They were disturbers of the peace and enemies of truth. So they proclaimed Jesus as the ultimate authority and they were therefore disturbing the peace. They were enemies of truth, preaching the resurrection in Jesus' name. Agitators, heretics, politically subversive, theologically subversive. It's always that way about Christians. You know, the claim that Christians are just disturbing the status quo as if the status quo is something that should never be disturbed or questioned. Um, And that they are enemies of what people just naturally believe as if what other people believe is always right. Recently, Adelaide held a march for life. 3,000 Christians from across different churches marching through the city to protest against... Um, suggested legislation before our parliaments that would allow abortion right up to um, term. So in other words, you could abort a 39-week-old fetus, person. And that fetus is a person, as every, every obstetrician or gynecologist or, you know, PICU nurse or midwife absolutely knows. Because when a baby is delivered at 36 weeks or 23 weeks, we fight to keep it alive. Anyway, suppose that push fails, suppose that our state um, allows abortions right up to term, suppose then that the protest therefore comes right to the doors of abortion clinics, which is now illegal, there would be a showdown with authorities. It might seem that things would be stacked against Christians. Well, it seemed that way for Peter and John. But in the way the story's told, I want you to see God's alerting us to a different reality. Because we read next sentence, many who heard the message believed, and so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. In the way Luke tells us, he's reminding us, whilst it may seem that the showdown is stacked against Peter and John, the reality is quite different. This is very, very important to remember in Australia, where what do we hear from the media? Church attendance is declining. People are giving up faith to become atheists. This is just the drumbeat that we get all the time. We remember Jesus' words. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, something that starts so small, but it will grow to be a massive tree. We need to remember this. You might be the only Christian, known Christian in your workplace. You might be the only Christian in your group of friends at school, the only one at university in your uni course. However, the reality is often different. In January, I was in Yangon. I was speaking to a Burmese Christian over there. He asked where I was from, Australia, which city? Adelaide. He said, oh, Adelaide. Yes, that has a massive population of Burmese Christians. Does it? Uh, It does. There's a church of 800 Burmese Christians who are meeting in Adelaide's north. Praise God. Isn't that encouraging? I didn't know that. 
there you go. Um, God is doing more amongst us than we often are aware of. You may work with someone for years and years, and then suddenly you go to a men's convention or Grace Women's Conference or somewhere, and you see them in, uh, turning up at a Christian meet. They thought they were the only Christian at the workplace as well. Um, and maybe, yes, maybe in some mainline uh, denominations, attendance is going down, but doesn't mean that other churches within that denomination aren't growing. It doesn't mean that Australians aren't joining other other churches, not in mainline denominations. It doesn't mean that God isn't doing his work. And we ought also, on a world scale, we, we ought to remember that the gospel is making massive progress in areas that we would have thought impossible only a few years ago. So where is the world's fastest growing church now? Iran. Who'd have thought a couple of years ago? Uh, I had the marvelous privilege uh, to baptize a few Iranian refugees who came to our shores who ended up at the city church. And uh, it was wonderful to see their faith. So though it seems things are stacked against us in the showdown, God is reminding us there's a bigger reality. Don't be dismayed. Next, we may be subject to intimidation, but remember it's largely based on ignorance. So after Peter and John are arrested, the next day they have to front up to a very intimidating crowd. Luke mentions them by name. You've got the high priest. You've got the members of his family. He mentions them by name. You've got the Jewish Sanhedrin, that 70-member council who were responsible for condemning Jesus. Very intimidating. By what power or name did you do this? There's the interrogation. But do you see the irony? So here are God's supposed spokesmen asking uneducated people to give... Um, input on what is a clear miracle of God even though the authorities want to deny it. They don't know, actually. They don't know. They're ignorant. That's sort of ironic for the experts. It's true of us that so often those who intimidate us and are loudest at shouting down the Christians, ridiculing those who believe, they actually are largely ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, this became clear to me at uni. I was, uh, in 1992, I stopped being an undergraduate. I went on you know, a junior role on the faculty of um, the psychology department at the University of New South Wales. So I went from being a student to being a staffer, and suddenly I was talking personally with people who were my lecturers, you know, which was a new sort of experience for me. Um, I, f I was wondering how to to reach out, you know, so I did, a, I did a public talk on psychology and Christianity. So the posters were up, right, all around the department and, you know, the, the it, time was coming and, and, you know, it was public and I was scared witless because I thought I am going to, I, there'll be a question time, I'm going to be stumped by some question by some guy who's got PhDs pouring out of their brain and knows much more than I do. And so I was very scared. So to prepare, what I did was I door knocked up the corridor, knocking on all my lect previous lecturers' doors, the professors' doors, to say, look, I'm doing this talk um, just to forearm me. I wondered what, if you could tell me what your big objections are to Christianity so I might be able to prepare. And what I discovered, to my complete amazement, was that very few of them had any working knowledge of the f rudimentary facts at all. 
Uh, they really hadn't read the Bible. They didn't know why you might believe the Bible, believe in the historicity of Jesus' resurrection, believe that the Bible is reliable. I was just you know, a recent graduate and I knew so much more than they did. I thought, wow. So that then put in perspective all their snide remarks that they'd been making during my undergraduate years about Christianity from the lectern, you know, during lectures. I didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> People often who shout loudly, they don't know what they're talking about. Um, they're often ignorant. That gave me immense courage when it came to giving the talk, I must say, and answering the questions. As does the next thing that God wants us to see, it gives us courage, and that is that the accusation leveled against Peter and John is ridiculous, as is so often the case for us. So Peter puts it bluntly, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and being asked how he was healed, I mean, really? Are you serious? Is that... The, the big accusation against us, is that our crime, that we were kind to a disabled person? What, how ridiculous. Now, of course, Christians can be accused of doing real things that are wrong. We're not meant to do real things that are wrong, okay? Um, but so often, what's leveled against us is just ridiculous. Uh, I think of someone in my previous church, an older man who I thoroughly respect, he was sort of sidelined out of the public service because within his department, in the Department of Environment, the workplace was so stressful, the people were so overworked that his work colleagues were delivering, developing stomach ulcers and getting cancers and it was, you know, having mental illness because of the workplace was so toxic. And he took it up with his boss and just respectfully said, you know, we need to get extra support or change the way we do things because it's so stressful. For that, he was ousted. Because he dared to what? What was his big crime? To speak up about caring for people. Heinous! <laughs> you know, you Christian. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? Um, well, now Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit... He now speaks with God-given clarity. If you're accusing us of an act of kindness, I mean, really, shown to a lame man, and we're being asked how he was saved, know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. It's by his name that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone that you builders have rejected, but it's become the capstone, the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He speaks with massive courage. Now, what does God want us to see I do have to say at this point, if you're not yet a Christian, right, you're not believing in Jesus, Peter's words come direct to you. There is no other saviour. You must be saved by him. So I want you to hear that, okay? But if you're a Christian and you're here, you know, what does God want us to see? Is it that Peter's just being deliberately provocative and narky? No. He's speaking with conviction because he knows that what God did to Jesus in raising him from the dead is God's big thumbs up, endorsement of Jesus. And that, that trumps anything that anyone else might think. And he knows that in God endorsing Jesus and raising him up, okay, 
has implications for us all. I mean, the risen Jesus has healed this man and his restoration is a picture of the restoration which God will offer everyone who turns and trusts in Jesus. He's proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. There's no one else um, other than Jesus that God has sent to bless the world and rescue us from decay and death and destruction. It's only him and he can do it. And the proof is the guy standing right in front of you. So he's massively confident from conviction, not just out of a desire to be narky. If you look at his core statement in verse 12, I want you to see three things. First of all, Peter's words speak of Jesus' exclusivity as the unique saviour of the world. He says, no one else. There's no other name under heaven. Buddha, Allah, Muhammad, Krishna, Moses... None of those is a saviour. Only Jesus. Secondly, he speaks of this saviour being necessary for everyone. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must, we must be saved. Now the assumption there behind that is that what Jesus did has one universal significance. Um... It's not just that he's the saviour of the Jews, you see, and that God has provided other saviours for other people groups. How do we know that? Well, Jesus himself said it, you know, in Luke 24, after he rose from the dead, repentance and forgiveness of sins must be preached in my name to all the nations. So Jesus himself believed it was for all the nations. The very last thing, do you remember, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before, uh, the last thing he said before he ascended into heaven was you disciples, you're to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. This wasn't just for the Jews. It was for everyone, all the nations. Okay, so Jesus himself thought that he was the global saviour. And he is. I mean, no one else uh, has been God in the flesh in our world. No one else, therefore, has lived the perfect life that we haven't lived. No one. No one, therefore, could be qualified to offer their life, their precious life of someone fully human, perfect, but also God, who could therefore atone for the sins of the world. No one else has risen from the dead, never to die again. No one else has done that. What Peter says, it's not just him being, it's not him being arrogant. <laughs> not, sorry, it's not, I said that wrong, didn't I? It's, I said it's not just him being, no, he's not being arrogant. He's being true. There is no other saviour. And therefore, all the world must come to Jesus Christ. And that make, means, thirdly, Peter's words are compelling. Uh, compelling on two fronts. Compelling on, for us, because if we have no other saviour, we must come to him. There is no other way to be saved. But compelling also for Jesus' sake. <laughs> um, you wouldn't want to fall into the same sin as the uh, Jewish elders at this point. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. You know, they were functioning in a diametrically opposed position to God. You killed him, but God endorsed him. You don't want to do that. If you're going to run in line with God, you must turn to Christ. Okay. All right, so God's action in raising Jesus from the dead gives clarity about his status. He, Jesus is the unique, only necessary saviour for the world. It's not 
a difficult truth. It's not a stone in your sandal to kind of feel uncomfortable about. It's a beautiful truth. Now, that God-given clarity in seeing that is what creates courage. Peter speaks with courageous clarity. So when they're ordered not to speak any longer in Jesus' name, Peter and John reply, what do you think it's right to do in God's eyes? That's the question. I mean, you got it wrong before. (laughs) It's clear what God thinks of Jesus. So should we listen to you or should we listen to God? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. They're not being difficult for the sake of difficulties, for the sake of being difficult. It's what they know about Jesus eclipses any other silly laws about being silent. This news is too important. It's too compelling. It's too wonderful. It's too necessary. Well, they can't decide what to do with these people, so they let them go. Given that remarkable show of courage, we might wonder, therefore, why the second half of the chapter is devoted to the church praying for courage. Why would they need to pray for courage if they have already shown such courage? Well, that's because we misunderstand what courage is. Courage does not mean, being, does not, mean not being afraid. Uh, it doesn't mean not being fearful. Courage means acting and speaking despite your fear, despite being afraid. Uh, going back to that talk I did in the psych faculty at New South Wales Uni, uh, the room was packed, probably 80 people or so in a small room. I remember feeling very afraid before I got up to speak. But you see, I had confidence and clarity in the message, in the gospel, uh, so I thought, no, 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 that can help me. And of course, people were praying, so I got up and I was, I did it. It was good. What happened to Peter and John must have shaken the early church because straight away they go and pray for boldness. That tells me the incident must have left them shaken. God has placed you in your work situation, your school. There will come a time when he may call you to speak, maybe just to one person, maybe to a small group of people in a car you know, on a way to a conference or around the the staff table. And people may try and intimidate you. Um, Often they'll be largely ignorant, despite their bluster. It might seem things are stacked against you. There are millions of people with you. Luke wants us to realize this. People might accuse you, you Christians. Often it's ridiculous. But knowing that God has raised Jesus from the dead gives you clarity and courage in knowing what to say. But nevertheless, it's, it's a good idea to pray for courage. And we can learn much from the prayer. So I'm going to go through it just drawing attention to a couple of points. How do they start? Sovereign Lord, I love this. None of what has happened is a surprise to God. He's across everything about it. So they pray to their sovereign Lord. Now I wonder, have you ever thought if God is sovereign and he knows everything and he controls everything, what's the point in me praying? Have you ever wondered that? If he knows my needs before I ask him and knows my words before they're on the tip of my tongue, what's the point in actually enunciating them? Please see, 
that here in Acts 4, in the early church, God's sovereignty wasn't a disincentive to pray, it was actually the reason why they prayed. So it was a motivation to pray rather than a discouragement to pray. Now, how does that work? Suppose for a moment that God wasn't sovereign. Suppose that he was all good but not all powerful. Well, that would be a reason not to pray because even if God wanted to answer your prayers, he wouldn't be able to because he's not all powerful. You actually have to have an all powerful God, a sovereign Lord, to pray if, he's, if you're confident, if you, if you have any hope that he's going to answer your prayers. They then quote scripture. So, first of all, they pray to a sovereign God, then they quote scripture, Psalm 2. Uh, this is a psalm that speaks of the natural inclination of rulers and leaders to fight against God and his Messiah. Why do they do this? It's quoted in acknowledgement that none of this is a surprise to God, and also it's a quoted in a, in a sort of a statement of trust. Lord, we trust you. You're across this. Thirdly, they trust him in the paradox. Now, what do I mean? It comes out of knowing that the world is sinful, yet God is sovereign. How do those two go together? Verse 27, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. That is a statement of what people have done. They have been sinful. They made decisions. They are responsible. That's a statement of human responsibility, verse 27. But look at verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They did it, but they, you'd already decided that it would happen. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, both true, both side by side, verse 27 and 28. You try and work out how they fit together and it does your head in. But let me just tell you that they both have to be true. I also want to say um, theology isn't the only discipline in which people grapple with this issue. Free will and determinism comes up all the time. Philosophy, um, law, um, um, medicine, okay, it comes up all the time. It's not unique to the Bible as, a, as an issue that people grapple with. But both of them have to be true because otherwise the cross doesn't make sense. So, for example, if you said, well, God, suppose God is sovereign over all that we do, that means that no one can resist his will, that means we can't do anything outside God's sovereign will for us, that means we're not really responsible because we're just doing what he's already planned, right? So if we're not responsible, that means if we do something bad, that we don't need to be punished because punishment implies culpability and culpability implies responsibility but if God is the one who's calling the shots how can we be responsible and culpable and therefore deserving of punishment and in which case if we're not deserving of punishment you don't need the cross to be saved do you flip it the other way around okay suppose we said well we're responsible for everything we do and we're held accountable and therefore God can't really be the one in control because our wills define everything. But if you believe that, the cross wouldn't have happened because the cross requires God's sovereign plan to begin ahead of time. He has to foretell it in the prophets. He has to send his son <laughs> into the world. That doesn't just happen in a flash. Uh, he, he, you know, Jesus has to live that sin, sinless life so that he can therefore offer his life as a worthy sacrifice. 
God has to be sovereign to make all that come together and happen. So both have to be true. People responsible, God being sovereign, which means when we experience sinful attack, none of it surprises God. And it means when we pray, what we do is we pray and we trust God through the paradox of this happening and us being involved in it, but God being over it. And what do we pray? Well, notice that their prayer is missionally specific. If you were Peter and John, what would you have prayed at this point? First, in, first experience of opposition. Well, if I was them, I would have prayed, Lord, please stop the opposition. Please silence our critics. Please may we not be thrown into prison again. Please may no one else be thrown into prison because they believe in Jesus. That's not what they pray. Look at what they pray. They pray for boldness. Boldness to speak God's word, and that God would stretch out his hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Why? Because they know that God has made Jesus and sent Jesus as the only saviour in the world and that everyone must know him. So therefore, that trumps any need for our own safety. The critical need is that people believe in Jesus and therefore the critical need for the church is that they speak the word of God boldly. And so they pray for courage and boldness. And having prayed to the sovereign God who's in control of everything, past, present and future, guess what? they get an immediate answer. There's a personal God, isn't it? Sovereign God doesn't mean he's impersonal. Sovereign God means he's responsive. Sovereign God means he's involved. Sovereign God means he answers prayer. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, that's Acts chapter four. How do we apply it? Jesus' exclusivity gives us clarity and with that, courage. Okay. Um, if you're the only Christian, you think, in your family or in your workplace or at school or at uni, you can feel picked on. And there may be some vocal critics who just delight in seeing you withered and worn down. And that can be very wearying. Some people here perhaps are married to people who aren't believers and who don't tire of putting the boot in when they can to your Christian convictions. Some people face constant intimidation or heckling. Knowing that God has raised Jesus as the saviour of the world and the unique saviour that gives you clarity and courage. You know they're ignorant about Jesus. They know that when you, they accuse you of doing good, of caring for others, of going to church, heinous, it's ridiculous. Because you know that Jesus Christ really is the saviour for all people. Uh, that all people really need a saviour. You're acting in line with that. That conviction brings courage at work, so that in your own way you will do what you can to get the word of God out to others. They think, oh, I'm not a great speaker. Um, well, you do speak, don't you? I mean, you do it all every day. 
And I've been really encouraged that uh, there are people here who have invited work colleagues to hear the Mark drama. What a great idea. And guess what? You've still got a week to do it. Um, there are people who might be interested in Jesus. They wouldn't discuss it in that work environment. But take them out of that work environment, meet them on neutral soil, a memorial hall, expose them to the story of Jesus, and it would be amazing to see what God could do with that. So clarity gives us courage, but also knowing that uh, the name of Jesus is the only one that people must come to means that we have really real clarity in praying. When others oppose us in the name of Jesus or because of Jesus, we pray in the paradox of their sinfulness to our sovereign God, please may you rule in this, may you answer. And because we're weak, we pray for courage, courage to speak despite being afraid. And having prayed, then we're expecting him to answer because we call on the one who is sovereign and actually the God of the detail and the God who's working in us and working in others. So we pray that Christ would be exalted as the one saviour for all the world because that's exactly who he is. Lord, for the husband or wife at home today who is suffering under the criticism of their unbelieving spouse, fill them with courage to behave in a godly way, to bear up the pain of unjust suffering and to speak as they can with courage and conviction. Father, for the Christian pressured into silence in their workplace, Sovereign God, may you work to create moments for them to speak into and give them the courage to do so. For the Christian teachers here who every day meet hundreds of students for whom Jesus Christ died and rose to be their saviour, please bring, give them chances to speak, though officially they are not meant to. May students come and inquire of them. May they seek out answers connected to Jesus or questions may they seek out questions connected to Jesus in their courses please give the teachers boldness to answer and point them to Christ sovereign father for the the teenager ostracized at school for being a Christian please embolden that young man or woman in Jesus name not to be ashamed of the son of man but to carry themselves with integrity and to speak courageously as you grant them chances to do it and sovereign God for all your people in the world who live under oppression and intimidation and restriction of freedom in Iran in Nigeria in Saudi Arabia in Yemen in Israel in India in Indonesia in the UK in China in Myanmar Fill your servants to proclaim your word. Fill them with your spirit, that through them you may save many. In the name of Jesus Christ, the one and only Saviour of the world. Amen.